As you're sitting down, high five somebody around you. Tell them you look like you do CrossFit. Yeah, good. Just a little. Yeah, and then turn out. Perfect. Awesome. It is so great to be with you this morning. My name is Pastor Nick Newman. If it is your first time with us, we want to say welcome to you. Or this is one of those seasons where you may be coming back to church for the first time in a long time. And if that's the case, we're excited you're here as well. Church, can you help me welcome every person joining us for the first time? Awesome. And for those of you who are joining us online, we're excited you're with us as well. We consider our church online family an extension of our home, and so we're thankful that you're with us today. We are uh, walking into week two of a message series that we've called Good Question. Last week, we talked about uh, why do I need to get baptized, and thankfully, we had the opportunity to see seven people go public with their faith through baptism, so that's awesome. We love baptism here at Propel Church, so that was an incredible weekend last Sunday. This weekend, um, with this series, one of the things that we do every Easter is we give out a survey. It's kind of like the Connect card. We just do it a little bit different. And on that, you have the opportunity to check off some boxes of some things that you want to learn about. And so what we did is we asked you, and one of the top things that you wanted to learn about was how do I read my Bible? How do I know my Bible is true? And so today we're going to dive into those questions. You're not alone in that. In fact, according to Barna, one of the most uh, highest searched things on Google is how do I read my Bible? I think if I were to ask you in the room today, you would probably say that you'd like to read your Bible more, but sometimes it gets a little bit difficult. Maybe you don't understand it. And today I want to help you understand your Bible better. And so the first question that I'm going to help answer today is how do I know the Bible is true? How do I know the Bible is true? Because this is actually one of the most debated things of our time when it comes to the Bible is its accuracy, the validity of it. And you'll have people who will say things like, well, we know that it was translated from one language into another and now we can't trust it or, or, or it was passed down from so many generations and now we can't trust it. But before we dive into any of that, how many of you had a yearbook growing up? Like you, you went to school, you got one of these yearbooks. I borrowed a yearbook from our team, right? People used to write you little notes in there and they, like, they were like passive aggressive, you know, like they gave you horrible advice like, dear so-and-so, never change. You're amazing. If you don't change from the time you're a senior to when you're 40, there's going to be big problems. <laughs> never change. I love you so much. You're an incredible friend, except for that one time where you didn't talk to me. But thankfully, we're through it now, right? Like people write you some weird notes in Scripture. But here's the thing, or in, in a yearbook, here's the thing, though. A yearbook is a lot like Scripture in that um, it has a very broad audience and a very specific audience at the same time. So if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down, that the Bible was written by God for his people. The Bible was written by God for his people. Just like this yearbook was written for an entire classmate, but the notes in that pertain to a specific person. God has written all of Scripture. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All Scripture is inspired by God. So the first thing we need to understand, if we're going to know if we can trust our Bible, is the source where it all came from. This wasn't a man-made thing. God breathed it. He inspired it. 
And through him, you and I were given scripture. And you say, well, how is that possible? I thought, I thought man wrote it. Well, they did, but God used them to do it. So I'll give you an example that maybe will help you understand. If, if you and I, at the end of the service today, you came forward and you said, Pastor, I need prayer for healing. And we prayed over you and you got healed. You wouldn't think that I'm the one that healed you. You would know that it was God's power at work through me that you found healing. It was God the whole time. And that's how we got scripture. God spoke to people, had them write it down, and you and I got God's word. It's all God breathed. It's all God inspired. So the first reason why I trust the Bible is because God did it. And it's useful to teach us what is true, to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong and teaches us to do what is right. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. So the Bible is inspired by God. That's the first part. The second part is that it's written for his people. It's written for God's people. If you and I don't understand the audience that Scripture was given to, then you and I will miss out and actually use it in the wrong context. Look at what Paul says to his letter in the church of Galatia. Paul's an incredible pastor, by the way. He's a good preacher because in all of Paul's letters, he's going to do an introduction and he's going to do a closing. He's going to get the plane to take off and he's going to land the plane. Here's how he's taking it off in Galatians chapter 1. He says this. This is a letter from Paul, an apostle. Just in case you didn't know who was writing the letter, Paul wanted to make sure you knew now this is Paul. I'm an apostle, and I was not appointed by any group of people or any human authority, but by Jesus Christ himself and by God the Father who raised Jesus from the dead. He's saying, these words that I'm about to write to you, this thing that I'm going to tell you, I need you to know I didn't just think about it. It wasn't just a good idea in my head. The thing that I was doing was writing down what God was saying for you. I didn't wasn't appointed by any human. No, this is what God is doing through me. So I'm writing you this letter to all the brothers and sisters here. Do me a favor. Join me in sending this letter to the churches of Galatia. So Paul says, I'm an apostle. I am a part of the church. I'm writing a letter to the church. And I want you to send this letter to not unbelievers, but to other churches. Because the audience of Scripture is God's people. And I think from a methodical approach, sometimes you and I get this wrong. And we look at a world of people who don't know Jesus, and rather than loving them through what they're going through, we shove Scripture down their throat. But if they're not a follower of Jesus, then they're not in the family of God, which means that's not the right audience for Scripture. So here's what I wrote it this way in my notes because I wanted to help you understand how the church functions. As a church, we preach the word of God to the church, but share the heart of God with the world. So here's how it works. Here's how it practically fleshes itself out. On a Sunday morning, if you've sat under my teaching for any amount of time, you know if you consider yourself to be a follower of Jesus, I'm going to teach you the word of God every weekend, and I'm not going to hold back on you. I'm not, I'm not, I, because you're, a, you're held accountable and you need to be taught the word of God. You need to know that, that there is a cost. There's a weight to this thing. That when Jesus says that a man doesn't build, go into a building project without first counting the cost, he's not just talking about building a house. He's talking about the way you're going to live your life once you choose to follow him. There's a cost to it. There's a weight to it. But with the world, you'll hear me on every Sunday. We'll talk because we've created a church where lost people feel welcome. 
that you need to know that there's a God in heaven who loves you. That his desire is to have a relationship with you. And he was willing to do whatever it took so that you could have a relationship with him. We share the heart of God with the world. We teach the word of God to the church. I call it the punch and hug. So here's how it works for the church. For the church, if you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to punch you first and I'm going to hug you second. We're going to hit you and it's going to sting a little bit. Your toes may hurt when you leave here. That's okay. We're going to hug you at the door on your way out. If you're a part of the world, I'm going to hug you first, and I might lightly punch you later, right? That's the goal. One of the methods that some people use, even here in 2019, is, is street preaching, where you, you stand on a corner and you shout scripture to people. Not the right audience. You know what people need to know? That despite your faults, your flaws, and your failures, there's a God in heaven who loves you and was willing to make a way so that you could have a relationship with him. Amen. That's what we do for the world. So first thing, we understand that scripture was given to us by God. And it's written for his people. The next thing is this, that the Bible's legitimacy is confirmed by historical accuracy. The Bible's legitimacy is confirmed by historical accuracy. So if you're here today and you are a skeptic of this whole Christian thing of the Bible, first I want to say, bro, thanks for hanging out, (laughs) right? Like we're honored and we are excited that you're here and I'm totally cool with you being skeptical. I can't even blame you for being skeptical. I just want you to know God can handle your skepticism. When I'm talking to people who don't believe that Scripture is the authority of God, it's the Word of God, or that it's true, it's actually not going to do me any good to take them to the passage of Scripture that says all Scripture is God-breathed to prove the point that I believe in Scripture. Because they don't believe in Scripture. So what we have to understand is that Scripture, the Bible, has historical accuracy all through it. There's not scholars who are debating whether or not the Apostle Paul was a real living person. You'll see kings through it, like Xerxes in the Old Testament. You'll see Pilate. You'll hear things like, render unto Caesar what is Caesar. All of these things were laws and things that were back then. There's historical accuracy all through the Bible. In fact, one of the coolest things in the world is that you can look up historical writings from that time, and there are people who didn't believe in Jesus, but they write accounts of the fact that there was a man who came, who died, and then he got back up. They say, I don't believe it. I just know that's what everybody's saying, and it, it actually happened. There's historical accuracy that confirms what we see in Scripture. And so I wanted to have a visual illustration for you because Scripture is really important um, for you and I. What Scripture is made up of is 5,866 manuscripts. So individual pieces of paper, these pieces of paper, these um, really stone and tablets and all this uh, parchment, whatever. it's. I hit my mic and <laughs> cut it out. All of these things um, were given to us and they make up scripture. So 5,866. Say it with me. 5,866. I've got 5,866 pages for you right there. All of those pages 
were given to us, here's what happened. They, would, they didn't have email. They didn't have text messaging. There was no Instagram. Can you believe that? And so what they did is they, they wanted people to have access to God's word. So they would write it and then they would give it to other people. They would send it. They would pass it on over and over and over again. And you're like, man, that's, that's kind of scary that our Bibles today are comprised of 5,866 manuscripts that were copied over the course of 2,000 years. Here's what I want you to know. You can look this up on your own time. Um, there's a professor called Bruce Metzger, and he did a study of these 5,866 manuscripts. These were copies. These were passed down over the course of 2,000 years of history. These manuscripts are 98.7% identical. Now, there are people who will argue with you all day to say that these manuscripts, because they were passed down, because they were written, there's no way that they can be trusted. There's discrepancies. And there's a professor who studied to say that there, it is 98.7% identical. C's get degrees. Man, I ain't never got a 98 on something. <laughs> never. Even on the stuff I paid people to do, I didn't get 98, right? You know what I'm saying? 98.7% identical. Maybe you're still not convinced. Here's another part of history that's interesting is around that same time period where we were gathering all of these manuscripts together to confirm what is now the Bible for you and I, um, there was another piece of literary work that came out, and it was Homer's The Iliad. And I wouldn't, there's not a scholar in the world who would, this is not The Iliad, by the way, this is just like a 200-page book, so just so you know, <laughs> this is The Scarlet Letter by somebody. Um, but in looking at this, in that time, um, we have 5,866 manuscripts of the Bible. We have 220 manuscripts of Homer's The Iliad. And there's not a scholar in the world that would debate with you to tell you that Homer's work is inaccurate or wrong at all. And yet, when you compare 220 to 5,866, people still go, I don't know if we can trust it. All of Scripture is confirmed by its historical accuracy. There are documents after documents after documents. So what they did next is they took Scripture, all 5,866 manuscripts, Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic, and they began to translate them into English. They began to work really hard to make sure that you and I could have access to God's Word. Because I don't know about you, but I don't read Aramaic I do a little bit of Greek, a little bit of Hebrew. It's enough to keep me dangerous. That's it. <laughs> but God had a desire for you and I to have access to his word. And so they translated it into English. And now you may be asking the question, well, which translation of Scripture is the best? Which translation of Scripture is the best? So there are three different types of translations of Scripture. I put them up here. It's word for word, thought for thought. And paraphrase. Word for word, thought for thought, paraphrase. Let me walk through those three different types and how they function. So a word for word translation, what they would have done is these guys would have taken, these scholars, writers would have taken scripture, these 5,866 manuscripts, and they would have looked at them in that original language. And what they would have done is they would have tried to write them into English as close as possible. 
And there are some incredible word-for-word translations of Scripture out there. I teach from a couple on a Sunday morning. I'm going to give you three of them. I teach from a CSB, which is the Christian Standard Bible. I teach from an ESV, which is the English Standard Version, and the NASB, which is the North American Standard Bible. Those three are word-for-word translations. What they tried to do is go through, or what they did is they would work through these these manuscripts and get the most accurate translation into English. Now, you may find yourself reading some of these translations and go, that word don't make any sense. Because there's some things that don't translate well from Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic into English. That's a word-for-word translation. I think those are incredible translations for you and I to use. The second one is a thought-for-thought translation. One, um, the majority of the passages of Scripture I've read to you this morning are from a thought-for-thought translation, which is uh, the NLT, the New Living Translation. The NIV is the same way. There's several thought-for-thoughts. And what they would do is they would look at those manuscripts and they would deduct the thoughts that were there. And they would tweak a couple of words to help you and I understand the transition from Greek and Hebrew into our language today. Because you ain't never pulled out a thoust or thou art or any of that stuff until you started praying, which is weird. But that was their goal. Their goal was to make it readable for you and I. So New Living Translation is an incredible one. Um, NIV is a great one as well. The um, <laughs> Whatever it is. So anyways, the NIV. The next one is a paraphrase. And a paraphrase translation is one that I personally, I read every now and then. To be honest, what they would do is they would take what, what's called some creative liberties and kind of gather the main idea and restructure it and rewrite it for the purpose of getting it done. And as they did that, I'll be honest, I'm not a huge fan of paraphrase translations, um, but I can make it through Leviticus with a paraphrase. Come on, in Jesus' name. The, one of the most common paraphrase translations is uh, the message version of the Bible. So you're back at this. We've got word for word. We've got thought for thought. We've got paraphrase. Which translation of Scripture is the best? If you're taking notes, this is going to help you so much. The one you can read and understand. <laughs> That's it. it. That's it. <laughs> God had a desire that you and I would have access to his word and that we could read it and we could get it because if we get it, we get him. So people say from time to time, well, you know, the NIV, they took out this word and they took out that word. Here's what I believe. I believe God is big enough and powerful enough that if he didn't want a translation of Scripture in the world, he'd take it out. He can't be all-powerful in some areas and not powerful enough in others. So the best Bible you can have is the one that you can read and understand. If you don't have a Bible, here's what I want you to know. We have them available for you every single Sunday here at Propel Church. Because I think you need a paperback Bible. And it can be leather bound. It can be, I think you just need one because there's something. I love my screen. I teach from an iPad on a Sunday morning. But when I sit down and open God's Word, I love looking at what He's been teaching me. I write through the margins of my Bible. I highlight, circle, underline. I put smiley faces beside stuff I love. I mean, I just, you need to be in the habit of opening Scripture and not just seeing God's Word, but seeing what He's taught you on the journey. Because for some of you, you don't give yourself enough credit for just how far God's brought you. So the best kind of Bible is the one you can read and understand. Next part of our time together this morning, I'm going to spend teaching you um, how do I understand the Bible? How do I understand 
the Bible? This is probably the biggest question because we've talked about different types of translations. We've talked about different ways you can read it, different things that help you with the approach. And I would say um, the, that layout, the word-for-word, thought-for-thought paraphrase, would, would be the, the scale of most educated, easiest to read, and entry level would probably be how I would describe those. Um, but how do you understand it? Because there's times where even I read Scripture and I'm like, I'm super thankful for you, Lord, but I don't know what that means. <laughs> How do I understand the Bible? Write this in your notes. All of Scripture points us to Jesus. Like, I, I really, I thought, like, I could give them some four practical ways or I could come out and teach you um, one of the ways to study your Bible, which is this method called SOAP, and it's that you do Scripture, observation, application, and prayer. Incredible way to read your Bible. But if you and I don't understand that all of Scripture points us to Jesus, I think we're going to miss out on some important things that God has for us inside of His Word. Because Scripture is really clear that Jesus is the Word of God. It says that the Word became flesh and it dwelt, He dwelt among us. That was the whole goal. Jesus is the Word of God. So how do I understand Scripture? I know that all of Scripture points us to Jesus. Jesus is having a conversation after He is resurrected from the grave with two guys on what's known as the road to Emmaus. It's Luke chapter 24. Um, as He's walking on this road, they're having a conversation. They've come from the resurrection. They've seen him die, and they've given up. Now, they don't recognize that it's Jesus. Jesus is overhearing them talk about how we were following him, and we thought he was the Messiah. We thought he was going to be the right guy, but, you know, he died. I'll tell you, if you read through Scripture, you'll find out. He told everybody he was going to die. And then when he died, people just got freaked out, and they left. (laughs) They're like, oh, he's dead. Yeah, that was the plan. <laughs> so, but sometimes God can tell you something's going to happen, but when the reality of it hits, it, it's totally different. It's a different message. So he's talking to these guys on the road to Emmaus, and Jesus is going to do the punch and hug. I'm going to show you. This way he says, he looks at him because they've claimed to be followers. They've just kind of given up hope a little bit. He said, you foolish people. You find it so hard to believe all that the prophets wrote in Scripture. Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering into his glory? He says, guys, this isn't just a New Testament thing. From the foundations of Genesis, we've been talking about the fact that there would be a prophet, a Messiah, a Savior, and he would come. He would be born in Bethlehem. He would live a sinless life, but then he would be brutally beaten. Isaiah chapter 50-something. He would be crushed for our iniquities. He would be pierced for our transgressions. That we serve a God who would literally come, take form of man, and die in our place. That's been the plan the whole time. And he says, you guys don't don't, didn't you remember? You've been reading scripture for how long? And you didn't understand that all of these things. So, so Jesus has now punched them. This is where the hug comes in. Verse 27. It says, Then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, explaining from all, explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning him. Jesus sits down with these guys. And he loved them too much to just give them truth and then walk away. He sits down with them and he begins to open up the word. And I think he would say something like this. In Genesis, I was the word of God. 
creating the heavens and the earth. In Exodus, I was the Passover lamb whose blood was sprinkled on the doorposts of your heart so that you could escape the bonds of slavery. In Leviticus, I was the temple, the holy place where you meet with God. In Numbers, I was the ever-present guide, your pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. In Deuteronomy, I was the prophet coming who is greater than Moses. In Joshua, I am the conquering warrior leading you into the promised land. In Judges, I was the broken savior rising up to rescue you. In Ruth, I was your kinsman redeemer. In First and Second Samuel, I was the pure-hearted shepherd king who rushed out to face the giants on your behalf. In First and Second Samuel, I was your righteous ruler. In First and Second Chronicles, I was the restorer of the kingdom. In Ezra, I was your faithful servant. In Nehemiah, the rebuilder of walls. In Esther, I was your advocate, risking my life to restore you to royalty. In Job, I was your living redeemer. In Psalm, I'm the God who hears your cries. In Proverbs, I am wisdom personified. In Ecclesiastes, I'm the meaning that lets you escape the madness. In Song of Solomon, I am your lover and your bridegroom. In Isaiah, I am the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, wounded for your transgressions and bruised for your iniquities. Are you with me, church? In Jeremiah, I'm the spirit of God that writes God's laws on your heart. In Lamentations, I'm the weeping prophet. In Ezekiel, I was the river of life that brings healing to the nations. In Daniel, I am the fourth man in the fire. In Hosea, I am an ever faithful husband pursuing my unfaithful bride. In Joel, I was the restorer of all that locusts have eaten. In Amos, I was your burden bearer. In Obadiah, the judge over all the earth. In Jonah, I am the prophet cast into the storm so that you could be brought in. In Micah, I'm the everlasting ruler born to us in Bethlehem. In Nahum, I'm the avenger of God's elect. In Habakkuk, I'm the reason to rejoice even when your field is empty. In Zephaniah, I am the great reformer. In Haggai, I'm the cleansing fountain. In Zechariah, I'm the pierced son whom every eye will one day behold. And in Malachi, I am the son of righteousness rising with healing in my wings. But the Bible doesn't stop there. He wasn't just promised, he came. And in Matthew, he is the king of the Jews. In Mark, he's the son of God. In Luke, he's the savior born to us in the city of David, Christ our Lord. In John, he's the word become flesh dwelling among us. In Acts, he is Christ the risen Lord, proclaiming salvation to the nations. In Romans, he's the justifier. In First and Second Corinthians, he's the spirit of God at work in the church. In Galatians, he's the righteous in righteousness imputed to us by faith. In Ephesians, he is our righteous armor. In Philippians, he's the God who meets our every need. In Colossians, he is the firstborn of all creation. In First and Second Thessalonians, he's descending from the heavens with a shout, coming to meet us together in the clouds. In First and Second Timothy, he's the one mediator between God and man. In Titus, he's our faithful pastor. In Philemon, he's our redeemer, restoring us to service. In Hebrews, he's our great high priest. In James, he's the life at work in our faith. In First and Second Peter, he is our living cornerstone. First, Second, and Third John, our advocate pleading righteousness in our place. In Jude, he's God our Savior, the one who keeps us from stumbling in present and presents us blameless with great joy. And in Revelation, he is the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, the Lamb that was slain before the foundation of the earth. He's the King of the world and the King of our lives. It is always 
been about Jesus. From Genesis to Revelation, God's desire for you and I was to see Jesus. Like one of my favorite passages of Scripture is in Genesis chapter 3. Because sin enters into the world. God, like, like Adam and Eve were perfect. They were created in God's image. They were walking and doing life with him. And sin enters the world into Genesis chapter 3. And at the very end of that passage, Scripture says that Adam and Eve had already sown coverings with fig leaves for themselves. But then at the end of Genesis chapter 3, that God slaughtered an animal and made coverings for them. Because even in Genesis 3, when they royally messed up, God shows us that our own coverings aren't good enough, but that through his bloodshed, through the slaughtering of something, what would be an innocent lamb, you and I could be covered. It's always been about Jesus. Jesus is having a conversation with some Pharisees in John chapter 5. And in this conversation with the Pharisees, which, let me just say, Pharisees get a really bad rap, right? They're the people that you read about in Scripture, and most of us go, idiots, how in the world could they do that? But like many of us live our lives like Pharisees. Like that's that's the hard part about it. Because here's what happens. Jesus looks at them in John chapter 5, verse 39, and says, you study the Scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. You think that if you just read enough, if you just work enough, if you just serve enough or do enough, that you'll have eternal life. And I know many people who claim to be followers of Jesus who are stuck right there. We just read a whole lot of scripture, we just work a whole lot, and if we just serve enough or give enough or love enough or be enough, then God will love us. He said, you study the scriptures because you think that in them you're gonna find life, but these are the very scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me and have life. And here's what I'll say about scripture, and I'm gonna land the plane. What you and I can't do is just set goals for reading chapters of the Bible. We need to find Jesus in the chapters. Because if you approach Scripture and just try and get something out of it without getting Jesus, you're not going to find life. You and I have to find Jesus first, and then we'll find life in the Scripture. Because many of us try and turn to the Word of God, the Bible, before we turn to the Word became flesh, which is Jesus. And you can't do it in that order. You get the Word of flesh, the Word that had become flesh, because He died for you and I. And then after that, you and I get to open up Scripture. Last thing I've got for you this morning is that you won't understand Scripture unless you have a relationship with Jesus. And so for some of you, I didn't come out here this morning to go like, you're probably not saved, right? That's not the goal at all. Because you might just be in the wrong translation, right? You You might just be in the wrong translation of Scripture. But this is what 1 Corinthians chapter 2 says. The person without the Spirit, which the only way to have the Holy Spirit is to give your life to Jesus. Because you don't get God's Spirit without God's Son. It's a package deal. The person who does not accept the things that come from the Spirit, uh, they do it because they don't have the Spirit. They don't accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but consider them foolish and cannot understand them 
because they are discerned only through the Spirit. So when you and I open God's Word, the reason why it's alive is because it's God living inside of us, calling out the things that are of Him. But for some of us, we don't have a relationship with God. And if you don't have a relationship with God, opening scriptures, you're not ever going to find life in it. But if you have a relationship with Jesus, then when you open scripture, his word is living, breathing, active, and alive. And you'll watch your life become transformed by God's word because you are living in the way he created you to live, connected to the source. So for just a moment, with every head bowed, every eye closed, I want to create an opportunity. Because some of you are here today and you've, you've been doing this Christian thing for a long time. You've been walking the game. You've been, you've been working hard. You've been serving. You've been giving. You've been, you've been checking off all the boxes. But you don't have life. It's because you don't find life in what you do. You only find life in who God sent to die in your place. So today is the opportunity for you to begin a relationship with Jesus. To transition from living your way to accepting what God did in your place. And if you're here this morning and you say, hey, I need to begin a relationship with Jesus, would you just lift your hand for a moment? Say, that's me. Let's see those. Here's what we're going to do. Nobody prays alone. We're all going to pray together. Will you say this with me? Dear Jesus, today I give you my life. I place my hope and trust in you. Thank you for dying in my place so that I could have new life. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on, church, will you stand to your feet and celebrate with those who made decisions for Jesus this morning? You can get louder than that. Come on. Amen. Amen. We're going to continue in worship and sing a song called Spirit of the Living God. And one of the things it says is that we're hanging on to every word. When God speaks, we're, we're grabbing onto it and we're, we're holding on to it. So I put on this jacket this morning. And the last time um, it was hanging up in the closet, which that's a win, but we'll talk about that later. So I go in the closet, put this jacket on, and I'm on the ride here. And I'm thinking, man, my throat is kind of sore this morning. And I reach into my pocket and I found a Ricola. I know. And I was like, how cool is that, that? That I had exactly what I needed when I needed it. And I didn't get to take the Ricola because I was thinking of you. Because <laughs> I wanted to make sure that when you read God's word, when you're singing songs and God speaks, that you hold on to it. That you put it away. And when you need it, you pull it back out. So let's worship.